Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. My wife and I um, just celebrated our six-year anniversary last month, and um, so it's been six years since we've been married, and this year I kind of sat with the wedding book open, the folder of, uh, of pictures in my lap on our living room couch, just flipping through the folder, remembering the wedding day. It was one of the best days of my life. It was the perfect day. It was an outdoor wedding, um, like every white millennial couple has nowadays. And it, in the morning, there was like some concern about the rain, but by the afternoon, it had cleared up. The weather was perfect. It was a picturesque, cloudless, sunny day. We had bouquets of flowers decorating the tables and the chairs. Everything was radi- radiantly decorated with greenery, flowers, and again, like every white person's wedding, burlap. Orchestral music played softly in the background as people gathered. My whole family was there. My sister was a bridesmaid, and she looked beautiful, as usual, in a lavender dress. My brothers were groomsmen, and they looked the best they'd ever looked in their entire lives, which isn't saying much, but still. My parents and my grandparents were all there, dressed to the nines, sitting in the front row. All of our closest friends were there to celebrate with us, and everyone looked absolutely exquisite. But there was one person who outshone everyone else. The person who this day was for. The person whose beauty everyone was captivated by. That there standing in the center of it all was me. (laughs) The groom. I was dressed in a brand new tailored suit. On my left wrist, I sported a jet black wristwatch that I was wearing for the first time ever. On my lapel, I wore an intricately crafted boutonniere. My my hair wasn't the unkept bushy mess that it is this morning. It was neatly cut and trimmed with a tight fade up the sides that you can only get at one of those nice barber shops where they give you beer while you wait. I'm not using hyperbole when I tell you I was dazzling. Also, my bride was there too. How, How do you like the description of my wedding day? Ladies, would you be satisfied if your husband described your wedding day like this? No? Why not? Because the bride is supposed to be the center of the wedding. The bride is who the people come to see. The bride is who people talk about when they leave. In fact, the only reason I was even allowed to get away with this sermon introduction is because my wife couldn't make it this morning. The bride is supposed to be the center. Now, our text this morning is strange. It's a weird one for at least two reasons. One, unlike most psalms, which are addressed directly to God, this is a psalm not written to God, but written to a human king. And two, it's a wedding psalm that is about and focuses primarily on not the bride, but the groom. 
the king on his wedding day is the focus of this psalm. Verses 1 to 9 are all about the king. The ending verses, 16 and 17, are all about the king. Only the middle few verses, 10 to 15, talk about the bride. That leaves 11 verses describing the king and only 6 describing the bride. You can think of Psalm 45 as like a best man speech written to the king on his wedding day. It spends most of the time talking about the groom and then, like every decent best man speech, mentions the bride as well. So as I read it, pay attention to just how the groom is described. This is Psalm 45. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, the go- your, your God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on high, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people, all glorious, is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to examine this best man speech written for the king on his wedding day, and we're going to do so in three parts. First, we're going to look at the battle, then second, the beauty, and third, the bride. Battle, beauty, and bride. First, the battle. The best man here spends the first part of his speech in an interesting fashion. After a kind of brief introduction in verses 1 and 2, he switches his topic and talks about the groom's military strength. Now, usually in the modern world, a best man kind of begins his toast with what? Like a funny, maybe an embarrassing story, maybe recounting the details of the day that he and the groom met, or maybe depending on who you chose as your best man, like a kind of questionable off-color joke about the wedding night. But here, this best man begins his song about the king with a blessing of the king's weapons. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. 
the people fall under you. What's with that? This is a wedding song. Why bring together a battle and, a, and beauty? Why meld together wedding and war? Isn't this a time for like feasting and not fighting? Yes, but in the ancient world, the king was responsible for protecting his people. Right? If you lived in your hometown there and it wasn't being pillaged, you had the king to thank. The king was the one to thank for that. He was the reason you could lay your head on your pillow at night without concern for invaders. And so to praise the sword and the arrows of the king is to praise the very tools that allowed the writer of this psalm to go home and lay his head on the pillow at night. The weapons of the king means the safety of the villagers. A professor at the seminary I attended tells this story about the time when he visited uh, Germany and he went to various concentration camps and he talks about how as he and his wife walked through the camps, they felt like physically ill at the atrocities that were committed there. And through it all, there was just one little glimmer of hope. One thing that gave them a spark of hope was the clock on the wall near the entrance that read 3.15 p.m. 3.15 p.m. And the clock was stopped. It hasn't read anything else since the end of the war because at 3.15 p.m., American soldiers broke into the concentration camp and freed the prisoners from their torture. Just imagine what it would be like to be a Jewish prisoner on that day at 3.15 p.m. As you stare through the chains and you see the tanks roll up and you see burly fighting men with their guns drawn charging forward, would their guns look scary to you? Would the weapons of these men be a threat? No. Right? To prisoners, the weapons of the king aren't scary but beautiful. To those in captive, the violent weapons of their emancipators aren't a danger, but a reassurance. So too in Psalm 45. In Psalm 45 too, one of the most beautiful things about this king is that he fights. That he's a fighting man. The sword and the arrows of this king are not threats to his subject, but comforts, because they know that their king fights for them. And because they know, like, look at verse 4, that he does so for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. The things that this king is fighting for make him a safe king to be around and to serve. Which makes us, this morning, ask this question. It's like, are you like this king? Do you fight for truth, meekness, and righteousness? Now listen, some of us, like in a cultural moment like ours, hardly need extra encouragement to fight. We live in a dramatically polarized society. This age of outrage where tribalistic insults are now commonplace on any news station you turn on. Social media is designed by professionals whose full-time job it is to encourage maximum engagement and therefore deliberately rewards intense emotional responses, namely anger. We're constantly from all directions, being formed and spiritually shaped and discipled into a hammer that sees everything as a nail. So every day there is like this new headline, right? See this new thing? Like, be mad at this today. Today you must stand for us 
with us in the fight against like this new tyranny that we just found out about yesterday. Everyone demands that in order to be upright, we must join their battle. And so I suspect that for many of us, the call to fight righteously, the call to fight for truth, righteousness, and meekness is actually a call to fight less. To disengage from the realm of the politically abstract, tightly held pet peeves in Facebook comment sections, and re-engage with our neighbors and our families. In a world that disciples us to be perpetually outraged, we must ask ourselves, are the things I'm fighting for defined by truth, meekness, and righteousness? Could the things you get most easily upset and angry about be placed into all three of those categories? It's easy for the things that we get mad about to be placed in the truth bucket. But what about the meekness one? Or what about the righteousness one? If you texted one of your best friends right now and said, hey, you got one text to send me to guarantee that I get upset, what would that text say? What would it be about? So what do you fight for? Now, for others of us, a call to fight like this king is actually not a call to fight less, but a call to fight more. Another byproduct of living in the age of outrage is that some of us, like, reacting to the conflict um, and the perpetual conflict, have swung the pendulum in the opposite direction and have become avoidant of conflict in general, even righteous conflict. We experience, like, what, what psychologists are calling cause fatigue. That there's a new cause every day to get behind, and it's exhausting and can result in numbness. And so the, the cause fatigue and the numbness that can coincide with being inundated with conflict can make us bow out of fights that at the end of the day are righteous and that we shouldn't bow out of. And so we stay silent when we should speak because fighting is scary, risky, and exhausting. Some of us don't fight, in other words, to be frank, not because we have a, a righteously self-controlled temperament, but because we're cowards. But there are things worth fighting for because things are valuable. There are fights worth having because there are things worth fighting for. Not in a way that ever enjoys the conflict and probably never on Facebook, but there are things in this life precious enough to fight for. And when we choose to not fight for that which is valuable, we say with our lack of action that those things really aren't that significant after all. This groom in our text this morning is a righteous man who fights with truth, meekness, and righteousness. That's the first point. The king's battle. Secondly, the, the king's beauty. Verse 2 begins by calling this groom the most handsome of the sons of men. Right? What a compliment. Basically, out of every single human being to ever exist, this groom here is the handsomest. You're hotter than them all. You're in a league of your own. Now, this is quite the statement. Right? My wife thinks I'm attractive. But, but if she called me the handsomest of all the sons of man, I would laugh out loud because she would be lying. The, the psalmist here is not lying. It's true. The groom he is writing about is the most handsome. But, but ask yourself this, why is he handsome? Look at the next clause directly after that, which explains why he's handsome. The psalmist says, he is handsome because grace is poured 
from his lips. The chief reason this man is handsome is not his wavy hair, jawline, and six-pack abs, but his speech. His lips drip with grace. Have you ever met someone like this? Whose lips drip with grace and wisdom. Who, like a person that when they walk into the room, the magnetic like field of the room seems to change around them. Who when they start to speak, everyone else just sort of seems to like fall quiet because they want to listen. That's the kind of person this groom is. The psalmist raves about him and continues raving about the beauty of this groom in verses 7 to 9. He talks about how God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. How his robes are fragrant, fragrant with expensive perfumes. How he has musicians playing for him in palaces. How he's surrounded by wealthy people of importance. But the key location of this groom's beauty is not in his wardrobe, his good looks, or, the, or taste for the finer things. In fact, when you look at verse 7, you notice there's a reason that this king is able to enjoy all of these luxuries and beauties. Namely, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. It says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Notice the therefore. It is because of this, it is because the king has loved righteousness, hated wickedness, that God has granted him all of these other luxuries. The center, core component of this groom's beauty, in other words, is not his good looks, but his good character. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. The groom is beautiful because he is righteous. Now, I get that this probably sounds cliche, but it's true. The psalmist highlights for us that in God's economy, the paramount quality that makes us beautiful is not how we dress, but how we speak. The divine metric of measuring beauty has less to do with your hair or your wardrobe and more to do with how you talk about people who annoy you after they've just left the room. There are some truly ugly people in this world who wake up every morning looking like Instagram models. And there are some truly beautiful people in this world who, as my grandfather would say, have a perfect face for talk radio. While our world tends to measure beauty by waist size, skin complexion, and facial symmetry, God tends to measure beauty by whether or not your lips drip with grace. Or to paraphrase, James, the author of the book in the New Testament, says this way, if you claim to be a Christian but don't bridle your tongue, your Christianity is worthless. So two questions for us this morning. One, by God's standard, are you a beautiful person? Does your speech drip with grace? Do you tend to say positive things about people and neg not negative ones? Or do you speak sharply about people? How do you speak about those whom you dislike when they're not around and when you're within the company of other people who dislike the, that person also? When you are frustrated and having a bad day, what pours out of your mouth? 
Are you a beautiful person? And two, is this also the standard you use to determine other people's beauty? Or are you more prone to write someone off or engage in conversation with someone based on their physical appearance? The groom in this text is praised for his handsomeness. And like, I'm, I'm sure he was a sexy man. But, but the central component of his handsomeness is his speech and his character. So we've had the king's battle, the king's beauty, finally, this king's bride. In verses 10 to 15, the psalmist switches from addressing and describing the groom to describing the beauty of the bride. She is magnificently radiant. She is the people of Tyre, which is the richest country in the region, bringing her gifts. She is a bride unlike any other. Notice that her her clothing even is like woven with gold, which means she's a princess. Only the wealthiest of the wealthy could afford gold in their clothing. But just who is this bride? What's her name? Well, this is difficult because we don't even know who the king is in this passage. But if we can kind of deduce who the king is, then we can figure out who the bride is. But who exactly is this groom? He goes unnamed throughout the whole psalm. And so historically, people have said a few names. The top that comes to mind is Solomon. Solomon was handsome, like verse 2 describes. He spoke with unmatched wisdom, right? Grace was upon his lips. He was wealthy, like verse 8 describes. He was a blessed man of God. And that makes decent sense of this psalm. That is, until we begin to read it a little bit more closely. On a closer reading of this psalm, strange difficulties begin emerging. Like like look at verse 2, for instance. When the psalmist calls this man the most handsome of the sons of men, there's an interpretive difficulty here in the Hebrew. This could also easily be translated more handsome than the sons of man. In the first instance, this would be just comparing him to other sons of men. In the second instance, this would be comparing two different categories of beings altogether. More handsome than the sons of man which would be a curious way to describe a mere human king. But that's not where the difficulties end. Bring your eyes just down the page, a few verses to verse 6, where the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The psalmist calls this king God. Now, it's true, like in some ancient Near Eastern cultures— Um, They would use kind of like divine hyperbole. They would attribute divine status to a king to talk about how amazing that king was. But the psalmist doesn't just call this king God and stop there. He also says that this king's throne is forever and ever. Now, if this is a human king, this is unlike any human king to ever exist. What human throne exists forever and ever? That point is made again and again throughout the narrative and is confirmed at the end in in verses 16 and 17. Look at it with me. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Now normally, when one king dies, 
a new king, usually that king's son is made to be king. And they cease worshiping and praising the old king, and they start praising the new king as king. But not so for the king of Psalm 45. Here, there will be no new king who is praised. It's the name of the groom that will be praised forever and ever. And notice that, like, praised by whom? Is it Israel? The region around Israel? The, the whole Middle East? No, not just in his own kingdom, but by all nations. And just how large will this king's kingdom be? Well, it will cover the earth. This is a king unlike any other king. A king in a league of his own. A divine king who is given the divine name. A king whose name will be praised by all nations, tribes, and tongues. This psalmist is writing of a king infinitely better than Solomon, or he is writing better than he knows. This psalmist is writing of Jesus Christ. And it's not just me that thinks this. The author of Hebrews confirms this in chapter 1 where he quotes this psalm and says that the psalmist is speaking not of a merely human king, but of the God-man, Christ Jesus. The groom of whom this psalm speaks is our rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And it makes sense, right? Jesus also was a man of war. When we deal with the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of Scripture, we are dealing with power. We are dealing with such appalling power that to begin to speak of it is inevitably to underestimate it. He's too lofty, too immense, too beautifully preeminent for our minds to begin to grasp. And his whole life is spent making war on sin and death, pushing back the curse and going to war. Throughout the Gospels, we have stories where Jesus does things like turns water into wine, heals the sick, feeds thousands of people with a single boy's lunch, walks on water, heals the blind, casts out demons, even raising the dead, making war on sin and death. And he does so, Jesus does so, in a way that is perfectly truthful, perfectly meek, perfectly righteous. Jesus was more handsome than the sons of men. Not in appearance, right? We're told in Isaiah that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. No, no, no. no. He was more beautiful in a more significant way than that. Namely, grace dripped from his lips. He spoke with a wisdom unparalleled. He was the kind of man who never said anything he regretted. His speech and his character were his beauty. He was perfectly righteous. He never had a moment of a sinful thought. He ruled and rules with righteousness. He hates wickedness. And listen, if you're here this morning, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, Maybe you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity and what it looks like and means to follow Jesus. I would just encourage you in this way. Consider the beauty of Jesus. Consider his speech. Read the Gospels. Flip open to like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And ask yourself, has any other human being ever in the history of the world spoken like this man? I haven't found one. 
His speech is beautiful. He speaks with a wisdom and a grace unprecedented and unparalleled. There is no man that speaks like Jesus. He is the perfect king. He wages perfect war. And so, Liberty Collingswood, that makes the bride in Psalm 45 not ultimately Solomon's wife. That makes the bride in Psalm 45 you and me, us. This psalm is about us. We are the bride of this magnificent groom, which means that this groom, Jesus Christ, his sword and his arrows make us safer than we know. Our king will rise to our defense, and no weapon formed against us will prosper when Jesus is our groom. Our king has gone to war for us, waged war on sin and death, and rose from the grave victorious. Our king is beautiful. Our king speaks with wisdom unprecedented. Our king's lips drip with grace. And so may we, as the bride of this godly groom, may we imitate him in our speech. May our lips, like his, drip with grace. May we imitate him in the things that we fight for, in what and how we wage war. And may we follow him in his truth, meekness, and righteousness. And as verse 11 says, since he is our Lord, let us bow down to him, for his throne will endure forever and ever. Will you pray with me? Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.